This is our New Testament reading from Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does, who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be here with you. It's a privilege to worship with you. We've got a a lot of cool stuff to look at in this passage, and so let me get started um, by praying uh, for us. Dear Lord, we want to know you. We want to be known by you. Lord, we are here from so many different directions, so many different perspectives. We come with so many different burdens. Lord, I pray that as we consider the text that St. Paul wrote so many years ago, that they would be relevant to us in our life today, that Jesus, you would show up to us in this text. Lord, show up as you are, show up also how we need you to be. Lord, be for us the King that we are looking for. Be for us the Savior that we are looking for, even if we're not yet even convinced that we need one. Lord, some of us are convinced of this story. We've heard it before. We long to have your righteousness given to us again and again. Lord, others of us are questioning whether we need righteousness, whether this is the solution for our life's problems. Lord, I pray that you would guide us, that you would be for us, you would be with us. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed how many food shows are on TV? There's dozens of them. Top Chef, The Mind of a Chef, No Reservations, Diner, Drive-In, and Dives, etc. There's, in fact, an entire network devoted to food. 
And I don't mean how to make food, but watching other people eat food. It's a little voyeuristic. We are so obsessed by food that we will sit down in front of a screen and watch other people consume it. We like food. We also like to think well of ourselves, and there are a lot of rules that are attached to food. Who you eat with, how you eat, what kinds of things that you eat, where we eat. And there's a New Yorker article by John Lanchester uh, not too long ago called Shut Up and Eat. And he recounts his personal journey towards the end of foodie righteousness. Once upon a time, he says, food was about where you came from. Now, for many of us, it is about where we want to go, about who we want to be, how we choose to live. Food has always been expressive of identity, but now that's defined in some crucial sense by our conscious individual choice, not just about what we eat, but about who we are. By the end of the 20th century, it seemed that more or less the entire developed world was shopping and cooking and dining out in a way that was given over to self-definition and self-expression and identity creation. Most of the energy that we put into our thinking about food, I realized, isn't about food, it's about anxiety. People feel judged by their food choices, and they are right to feel that because they are. We've come back over this central conflict in Galatians over and over, and I think Paul would have liked this New Yorker article because there's a great deal of conflict in Galatians that has to deal with who's eating with who and what are they eating? And this happened in the early church in general. There's great conflict over, did you have freedom to eat with people who were not like you, who were not clean in the Jewish sense? And these agitators, these teachers had come into the churches in Galatia, and they wanted to keep having these conversations. They wanted to keep this debate going. They wanted separate tables for Jew and Gentile and clean and unclean. And Paul says, no, You don't belong to God because of the way that you curate your outward life. Paul had brought them this incredible, liberating good news that told them that they don't have to generate a righteousness on their own. Far from it, that Jesus, that in Jesus, God had granted the entire world, and particularly to the Galatians, the opportunity to take hold of a righteousness that came from the outside in, that came from God himself. The problem, and this is our problem today, is that generally speaking, people don't like a righteousness from outside. We want to generate our own. We want to come up with something, anything that we might be able to justify ourselves to other people, to our parents, to our spouses, and also to God. So people don't give up their rules that easily. There was first century foodie righteousness, just like there is today. When I first moved to Portland, when we first moved to Portland, I wanted to fit in, and so we bought a gigantic SUV. If you're listening at home, people in Portland don't like SUVs. It's uh, a way to stand out as not fitting in. But we had this enormous SUV, and we have four kids, so we justified it. But Oliver, our son, was invited for a play date on a Sunday, and the dad of the kid that he was going to play with worked for a conservation organization. I can't remember what the mother did, but it was a very Portlandy family. And so we leave church in our ginormous SUV, 
And then because we were running late and our kids were hungry, we stopped at McDonald's. And I'm probably being judged right now. We thought we could hide this little Portland faux pas. But when we went to drop off Oliver, his friend's mom came out to say hello and see how we were doing. So here we are in our humongous, gas-guzzling SUV, wolfing down McDonald's, and there's bags everywhere. And she walks up. Now, she was very gracious, so maybe this says more about my insecurity than anything else, but don't we judge other people by what they choose to eat? Don't we feel judged by what we eat, how we eat, what restaurants we go to, who we choose to eat with? We long for a righteousness that is internal, that we can be measured by what we do, that we want to measure up, that we want these badges of belonging to whatever community it is that we long for their approval. And we don't give up these things very easily. And the Galatians didn't either. They had received Paul's message of free grace, but they had reverted back to dividing their community based upon outward things. And what does Paul say to them? Well, he's baffled that this could happen again, that Galatians, the Galatian church is now dividing again. And he says, are you bewitched? Are you bewitched? Has someone cast a magic spell upon you? Of course, he doesn't believe in magic spells, but he's rhetorically saying, this is the only thing I can think of that would cause you to revert back to this old way, this old system. Who has bewitched you? And he's referring to a very common superstition in their culture called the evil eye. And for us, what is the evil eye? It's this glance, this sideways glance, this downward glance that you glare at someone. You give them the stink eye to show your disapproval for something. And if you care about that person's opinion, it's very powerful, right? It'll cause you to change what you're doing in that immediate moment. But it was much more powerful in the ancient days because they attached this sort of superstition that you could cast a spell on someone by the evil eye. And so Paul is saying, though he doesn't believe in this superstition, he's saying, are you bewitched? Has the, these agitators, these teachers, have they brought their evil eye onto you and you're so wanting their approval that they've cast a spell over you and you've given up the gospel? There was something, some way of life, a way of religion that was so entrenched into these agitators' lives that they were incensed at the Galatians' freedom, that the Galatians didn't, um, didn't behave in the same way that they did. They were incensed, and so they gave them the evil eye. They call themselves Christians. They think they're holy, and they don't live like us. They're looking down on the Galatians, and Paul is asking them rhetorically, have you been bewitched? Have you given in to these superstitious people? Are you going in reverse? The gospel was good news, liberating news to the Galatians. And it was good news for these agitators as well, but they were rejecting it. Not in whole, these were Jewish Christians, but they were rejecting the implications of the gospel because they were so tied up in their religious systems, their outward piety. When people ask me why I'm a pastor or why I do what I do, I often um, tell them or I'll explain how incredibly joyous it is for me to have people set free, to see the lights come on in their faces and say, you mean I don't have to live this way anymore? You mean all of these years of living for this person's approval, that I don't have to do that anymore? 
I've studied, I've labored, I've tried so hard to be right. I was the best theologian I knew, but really there was no, there's no joy in it. Every once in a while, a person comes alive in counseling or even in preaching, and hopefully you've experienced that too, maybe in your friendships or maybe in your own life. That switch has been flipped. That light has come on, and the freedom of the gospel is now illuminating your life in a way that it wasn't before. I love that about being a pastor because I get a front row seat oftentimes to those types of things. But you know, something opposite happens as well, and maybe even more often. When you offer someone a new way of thinking, when you tell them something new that conflicts with their current ideology, their current politics, their current theology, what do they do? The light doesn't come on, or maybe it comes on in a different way. It comes on in anger. It comes on in defensiveness. You can't possibly be right. And you see this in its basis form on social media, of course. Someone out there is saying something that is wrong, and I've got to go defend my position. Well, why are we so incensed? Why do we get angry? It's because our opinions, in many cases, aren't just viewpoints, but they're rungs on the ladder that we're climbing. They're rungs. And so when someone takes a rung off and you can't climb as high anymore, you get defensive. Our opinions, our behavior, our theology become things that we stake our meaning upon. And so we can't afford for other people to be right. And sometimes we can be quite the entrenched boneheads in the church as well. The Galatians have heard the gospel. They've heard the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection on their behalf, and it set them free. But the evil eye, the opinions of others, are causing them to retreat because those people's opinions are so powerful and so important. And so Paul makes three appeals here, and this is the beginning of point one, so don't worry. We're in kind of midway through the sermon. This is just one, two, three, quickly, three appeals. The first one he makes is an appeal to experience. He says, you foolish Galatians. You foolish Galatians. That's, that's a loaded term. He's telling them basically that they're acting like teenagers who don't know any better. You're acting foolish. You know, when you're a teenager, you're just about as smart intellectually as you'll ever be. You have just about as many neurons as you're going to have. You have about the same IQ when you're a teenager as when you're 30 or 40. But what do you lack? You lack wisdom, you lack experience, you lack impulse control. And Paul is talking to the Galatians as if they're teenagers. What's the matter with you? Are you kidding me? What were you thinking? Well, if you ask a teenager that, they're like, I don't know, I wasn't thinking, I just did it. But Paul gets up into their face. You foolish Galatians. One of the Bible translations from the 1950s translates it this way, oh, you dear idiots in Galatia. Oh, you dear idiots in Galatia. Tell me this one thing. I only need to know one more thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Three key phrases. One is receive the Spirit. Well, already at the time of Paul's writing here, this receiving the Spirit had become sort of a technical term that meant basically conversion. It meant becoming a Christian, the beginning of the life of discipleship. And he's referring them back to their own experience of how they had become a Christian, 
how they had become a Christian church and how it had changed their individual lives and their lives together. They had received the Spirit. Now, receive seems a bit of a, to be a bit of a passive type of verb, but in the Greek here, it's an active verb. It's an active receiving. It's an opening yourself up in a way that the Spirit comes in. But it's not a conjuring up. It's not a, a performance that is rewarded by the Spirit. It's actively receiving God's presence and God's grace by His Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit? Were you converted? Did you become a Christian by works of the law? Now, we've talked a good bit about what works of the law is in this series, and we'll hit on that in terms of definition in just a few moments. But what he is saying, did did the Spirit come upon you because you had adequate works of the law, because you had marks of belonging? No. You You were pagan people. You were unbelievers. You didn't have these works of the law. Instead, Jesus identified with you out of his work, by his good works. You were united to Christ by his work of the law. Did you receive the Spirit by your works of the law or by believing what you heard? And it's asked in such a way that the answer should be obvious to all. Back to the parent-teenager thing. Didn't I tell you what was going to happen? Yes, you told me what was going to happen didn't we have this conversation before? Yes, we had this conversation before. Everyone should know from this question what the answer is. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? It's the last one. By believing what you heard. Now, what does Paul mean by believing? Believing the gospel message is more than just purely cognitive agreement. It's more than how we would say, I believe in the platform of the Democratic Party, or I believe in aliens, or I believe my team is going to win the national championship. These are sort of neurons that are firing. They're held back in your gray matter somewhere. They're sitting there, but they don't demand anything of you necessarily. The Hebrew idea of of belief, which Paul is very well-schooled in and acquainted with, and which he's taught the Galatians, is much more than just cognitive assent. It doesn't rest just in your gray matter, in your noggin somewhere. It's much more than just thinking the right things. It's much more akin to a familial trust. It's staking one's life upon what they've heard. And again, calling them back to their experience, what happened in their lives. You believed what you heard. You staked your entire life upon this. This is your new family. Don't revert back. You believed what you heard. He appeals, first of all, to their experience. Then he appeals, secondly, to Scripture. He's going to battle with some pretty good theologians, these Jewish Christians that have come in, and they're trying to encourage the Galatians further in their holiness. And so Paul then goes head-to-head with them. Well, let's talk about what does Scripture actually say? What does Scripture call us to do? And he's saying that this isn't something that Paul made up. But in essence, this relationship, this way of relating to God has been present from the very beginning, at least in seed form. And he quotes Genesis 15, way back in the beginning. Abraham, the father of the faith, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, what Paul is saying is that salvation has always meant responding, it's always meant receiving, not conjuring up and offering. 
It's receiving his, his grace. And this reflects not only the Scripture, but the very character of God himself, who is looking to extend his love and mercy to people who don't deserve it and who aren't necessarily looking for it. Abraham, this guy way back at the beginning, is emblematic of this. And Paul is essentially um, arguing from Scripture, is appealing to Scripture and arguing essentially that these teachers who are wanting the Galatians to adopt these Jewish markers of faith to indicate their commitment to truly belong to to God's covenant community, that they don't really understand their own Bible. And he takes them back to the very beginning. You see, who is Abraham? He, he was one of the first. He didn't have a system of purity laws to follow. He didn't have a holiness code to adhere to, to be emblematic of his faith. What was his holiness? It was his belief, his familial trust of God, his leaving Ur and following God wherever it went, his belief, his trust. That was his righteousness And in so, God credited to him, to his account, full righteousness, full belonging, full holiness. Abraham trusts in, clings to, devotes his future to God, and God grants him righteousness. And Paul is saying, Galatians, this is what you believed. This is what you staked your life on. Charles Blunden was a tightrope walker who made a name for himself by walking not only across Niagara Falls, but many different tightropes uh, between buildings, between cliffs, and so forth, so forth. And one of his trademarks was inviting someone from the crowd to get on his back and walk out with him. And if there wasn't someone from the crowd, the manager would often do it. And he would walk out onto this tightrope, and this person would be on their back completely helpless, completely dependent upon Charles Blondin's capabilities, and they couldn't do anything. Now, imagine if this person gets sort of halfway out there, and they're like, well, I'm, I'd like to get off now. Uh, can you set me down? No, that person would fall, and that's what Paul is getting to here. He's saying, Galatians, God gave you his righteousness, and now you want to go back and generate your own. Now you want to go back and cling to these outward markers to signify who you are to other people. You're not yet secure in me holding you. You're not secure in my capabilities, in my righteousness, and therefore you're looking to generate your own. He appeals to experience, appeals to Scripture, and then finally he appeals to the cross. He appeals to Jesus' crucifixion. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, we should ask, because if you know your Bible geography, which I'm sure all of you do, Galatia is a long way from Palestine. They live a long way, and this is many years after Jesus being crucified. So why is he saying before your very eyes? Probably none of these Galatians were actually there when Jesus was crucified. But it doesn't say that before your very eyes Jesus was seen as crucified. It says portrayed, portrayed. This word portrayed means to basically put up on a placard. It means graphically describing something. Paul is saying, I came to town and I didn't just teach you stuff. 
I didn't just give you spiritual principles to live by. I didn't just give you a new layer or a new perspective on what it meant to be followers of Christ so that you could put that on top of what you already believed. He says, I graphically, I vividly portrayed before you Jesus Christ crucified, the story of Jesus and how he came and he lived and he died and he resurrected. He was resurrected. I graphically portrayed that to you. Okay, but what are the very eyes then? If they didn't actually see anything physically, why would Paul put it this way before your very eyes? Did he have a PowerPoint presentation, slides, or better yet, a a flannel graph? Those are always great. No, what does he mean? He writes elsewhere in Ephesians, he writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul came and he didn't just give them a set of spiritual principles, not a set of rules or regulations to live by, but he told them a compelling, vivid story. He told them the story about Jesus, about Jesus living and dying, about Jesus crucified, and something happened to the Galatians. They didn't just agree that it happened They didn't just say, yes, Paul, I now believe that that did indeed happen. You've convinced me. No, something happened in the eyes of their heart. Something gripped them. Something was vivid. Their imaginations took hold of something that what Jesus had done those years before in Palestine could mean something. In fact, could mean everything to me right now. Their eyes were enlightened. Their hearts leapt at the good news that they were forgiven, that they belonged to God, that all of their sin and all of their trying had been crucified with Christ, and all of His grace and all of His goodness had been given to them, had been credited to their account. They are now righteous, not just in concept, not just in mental assent, but something in their bodies had taken hold, something in their imaginations. And I guess I just want to ask as we end, has that happened to you yet? Is that how you respond to the story of Jesus? I don't mean that every time you hear it that you just get this magnanimous feeling and you can't sit still. And it, it, It's not like that all the time. In fact, sometimes it's very seldom like that. But have you seen Christ portrayed vividly as crucified for you personally? Has it moved from the realm of ideas down into the eyes of your heart? Well, how would we see this? Have you begun to let go of some of the ways that you try to prop yourself up before others and before God? Now, it's not always a clean slate. You're going to come up and you're going to understand, oh, I see this and I see this new way. And you're going to constantly have to go back to the gospel, back to Christ crucified? Have you begun to let go of the ways that you try to prop yourself up before others and God? Have you begun to be as suspicious about your good works and your goodness and your morality as you are about your sin and rebellion? Have you begun to let go of debts as we pray every Sunday and bless others with the forgiveness that you've received? And are you still hiding? Are you still hiding that secret sin, that failure at work, that terrible story from childhood? Are you still carrying them around out of fear 
and not letting other people in because of what those things would say about you. Friends, Christ was crucified for you. All of your sin, all of your failure, all of your brokenness went to him, and all of his righteousness and love and goodness comes to you. Don't go back. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I do pray that more and more that as we seek to believe this intellectually, that it would also take seat in our emotions, in our imaginations, and that it would begin to seep into our lives, that we would live by this, that it would not be something that we just go on Sunday morning to remind ourselves of what we think about the world and that we are right about ultimate reality. But instead of that, that we would come each Sunday morning to see Christ crucified, to have our imaginations captured, to have our desires drawn into what you are doing in our lives and in the world. Lord, let us be that. Let us do that as a church. Let us do that as individuals, as families, as friends, as husband and wife. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.